Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. The common misconceptions about talent and success can cripple the average person's motivation to create something new. Alan Gannett is here to dispel the myths and empower your shit with the hardest of sciences. So the next time someone encourages you to, quote, follow your passion, don't automatically think of the top three things that come easily to you. That's not passion, according to Alan, it's laziness. Here, Alan elaborate on this nugget of wisdom and so many others that he's gained from his research for the book, The Creative Curve. This is episode 266. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. That is incorrect, John. Today is technically Friday, Friday, Friday. And now it is time for another episode of the premiere podcast in strength and conditioning. Hey, guys, guess what? It's not actually Friday. Today is actually Tuesday, but now you're listening to it and it is Friday. And here's what we're doing in about how many hours, John? Um, I think we are, well, it's, uh, I'm guessing about two and a half. Two and a half hours from now. We will be smashing pound by pound of bison brisket, right? Whoa. Stay classy meats. Is it bison, John? Uh, yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's a Kobe bison brisket. Ten pounds of Kobe. I'm going to be smashing God. it Kobe by the handful. Kobe buffalo brisket. Ladies and like gentlemen. Unique New York. Imagine finely minced brisket in the palm of your hand, packing it to roughly a softball-sized ball of meat and jamming that thing in your mouth like a python, chewing twice and swallowing. That's what I'm going to be doing in three hours. It's going to be good. So what I did is um, I pulled it out of the fridge last night uh, or yesterday, got it defrosted. Once it was at a good deal, seasoned up, put it back in the fridge, got up early this morning, pulled it out, got it up to room temp, fired up the big green egg, got it right at 250 using uh, you know a little flame boss that I got. Um, Put it in the pan, threw it on there, threw, used a little uh, pecan wood and uh, some oak that I had laying around. So I threw that in there, smoked it, and it's been at four hours at 250. I'm going to go up right now uh, in about 30 minutes, pull it apart. I'm going to pour in two cups of espresso, and then I'm going to seal that sucker back up in tinfoil, uh, maybe a little apple cider vinegar, and then I'm going to throw it back on for another two hours at 200, and it should be just about right. It's going to change our lives, Tex. I mean, I, I wait. Yeah. All this made possible by Shameless Plug, Stay Classy Meats, man. Uh, they were so they sponsored. It's the- really not a plug because it is unbelievable, and they yeah. also kicked in some. Uh, I got some uh, uh, beef kibasa sausages that Ooh, were uh, 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 buffalo. Uh, Kobe Buffalo kibasa sausages that they threw in uh, that I got in the fridge that I'm going to fire up as well. So we got an epic adventure of meat coming. So up. we these guys totally fucking hooked us up for last year's symposium. We had a speaker dinner at John's house in this amazing backyard. We had like 35 people here. They brought hundred a hundred pounds of food of I'm, Kobe fucking tomahawks, which uh, is officially the most a, infamous steak in well, power athlete it's history. The, uh, if if there was ever a defining moment in power athlete, it would have to be the Kobe fucking Tomahawk <laughs> on, on two, uh, yeah, two occasions, not only when, uh, we were at Mastro's ocean club yeah. in, uh, in Scottsdale, Tex, were you with us? That no, time? it was not me and Ben. Oh, it was you and Ben. That's right. So we, uh, you know, Greg Glassman's, you know, and ex-wife, uh, you know, had the, you know, the big credit card and took us out for these Kobe fucking Tomahawks mm-hmm, at a buck mm-hmm. 50. Apiece. Well, she had come to the seminar. She had had a great 
experience as rock is stars. tradition. We are rock stars at that, right? And then wanted to take us to dinner to uh, to make it happen. So the guy comes over, gives the specials, and he looks at me and he's like, oh, we have these, uh, you know, once in a lifetime, you know, 42-ounce Kobe tomahawks. And he goes through the whole thing and he's yeah, like, you know, they're uh, 150. 12-hour delivered oh. from fucking, yeah. Yeah, so the, the guy looks at me and I'm like, uh, I was like, that sounds good. I'll have that. And like Luke and Ben both look at me. Yeah, and I'm they like, I'll like, have the scallops. And John's like, no, he will not. He yeah, won't have I was fucking like, con- I was like, you're not pulling a fucking Nate Austin on me. <laughs> Kobe fucking tomahawks. And then we go around and I'm, and then everybody looks kind of nods heads. I'm like, Kobe fucking tomahawks for everybody. Like that's Sam Adams commercial. And yeah. Uh, you know, orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. So we order these amazing steaks. And then, uh, you know, it became really just our, you know, uh, team cut of meat, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah. the, the power athlete cut of meat is the Kobe tomahawk. And how ironic. That ended up, I mean, wow. that steak. Talk about a story art. <laughs> <laughs> and then that became the, the wedge that uh, drove right into the pussy of CrossFit. Yeah, exactly, man. That's what, like, every great story ends how it starts, right? A story arc. Mm-hmm. Speak of oh, a spoiler alert, but before we get into that, I'm going to keep this one short. Uh, symposium tickets are on sale. They're going fast. It was powerathletehq.com slash symposium, but head to events.powerathletehq.com. They're both going to go to the same place. Check it out. If you have a question, submit it in the form in the bottom. Everything should be taken care of you. It's going to be an epic event. State Classy Meets is also helping us out again this year. So uh, how, how timely, right? How timely for this? Thanks to those guys. If you are fucking a carnivore and you enjoy tasty Dude, meat, check them out. Yeah, they send a meat box every month. Uh, you know, I hit them up and uh, ordered up this big brisket so we could fire this sucker up. And uh, I could not be more excited. I posted it on Instagram and uh, I got a lot of submissions, people recommending how they should cook. The one I went with was Flutters. So thanks, Flutters, if you listen to this, who uh, is the chef that came out and cooked those Kobe tomahawks for us. Dude crushes it. So... Um, you know, as you know, we are definitely a big fans of uh, some of the best meat out there. And dude, stay classy. Thank Brought you. Brought it. Brought it. Now, bring the action. Let's get creative. Ooh. The guy that we got on the show today, uh, dude's name is Alan Gannett. He's author of The Creative Curve. Text read his book, and it just seems like, you know, we've been on this creativity innovation kick, and it fit right into our, mm-hmm. our personal palette. So uh, we're going to dive into it. We're going to hear a very overcaffeinated bro preach about how creativity, much like athleticism, is not a gift from God, but something that can be acquired through a systemic approach, right? So let's break it down. Alan, give us an introduction on who you are, uh, what you've accomplished. I mean, pretty stellar uh, credentials from uh, Texas Review and a lot of the stuff we've peeked into. So what's up, man? Who are you? Why should people know you? (laughs) So uh, my name is Alan Gannett. I run a company called TrackMaven, which is a six-year-old, 60-person company that helps big consumer brands figure out what are the patterns in their marketing data? Right? What are the things that are resonating with consumers? What are the things that are working? What's not working? And I've always been fascinated by how you can apply sort of systems and science to things that seem organic, like creativity. And creativity is really fascinating to me because it's one of these things where I always grew up with a belief that creativity was something you learn and nurture. But four or five years ago, I started realizing I work with so many marketers, I would hear stuff around how, oh, well, I'm not that creative. And that's not me. I'm not Mozart. And I'm like a frustratable guy from New Jersey at heart. And I was like, what are you talking about? I would get into these discussions and I realized this is like, I'm in a little minority. Most people think creativity is a fixed skill and it's something that you can't get better at. You either have it or you don't. And so my whole idea was, could you build a book that uses research, interviews, and science to prove to people 
that creativity is learnable, is nurturable. And so the book just came out. And the whole idea for the book is the first half is tackling the history and the science around creativity and showing that we actually know how creativity works in our brains and how to actually really master it. And then the second half of the book is based on I interviewed 25 living creative greats. So these are everyone from like billionaires like David Rubenstein, um, you know, Alexis O'Hanian, the founder of Reddit, Patrick and Paul, the songwriting duo behind La La Land and Dear Evan Hansen and The Greatest Showman. And, um, you know, from those interviews, I come up with these four laws, these four laws of the creative curve that are very practical things you can do to get better at creativity. And I decided to talk to you guys, actually, because I do have a whole chapter in the book about talent. And I think there's a really interesting intersection behind the talent of creativity and the talent when you think about sports or weightlifting or any of these sort of things. And so I'm like, I'm jazzed and I'm caffeinated. <laughs> Perfect. I was going to, I was going to go with caffeinated is uh, my first one, but uh, uh, I wish you guys could see this because as he's talking, his eyes got big. I'm like, this dude has got way <laughs> too much is, coffee to her face or, uh, or cocaine or passion yeah, exactly. or passion. Could it be passion? Uh, well, I, so let's uh, let's kick it off with those laws. So you introduced the four laws of creativity, and I guess one of my questions is: they're introduced in a specific order. Is there kind of a flow to that, or can you bounce around between each laws? Um, before we get cranking on, on it, I was going to ask. Uh, I kind of of uh, of the same mind that either people are creative or, or they're not. Like I always thought that like, you know, and I've met some really creative artists that were able to do some amazing things like Rick, for example, my buddy from Starling Gear, who would like just her with his mind works in a different way. So I always think like people have creativity in certain veins. Like for him, it might be art creation, you know, uh, aesthetics or whatever it is. Other people are creative in other ways. So is it the fact like uh, how do you differentiate between creativity? Is it just creativity as a whole or do you look at creativity into like certain um, kind of, I don't know. Well, I guess I don't think it's all equal and I'll let the fucking expert say what, what's what obviously, but like you talk about Rick, who's like such a, like he's oh. a minority, like he just yeah. is like a, the pinnacle, just like there's the pinnacle of athleticism, the proverbial Michael Jordan or Bo Jackson, right. In their domains. Um, but I think that you got a guy like Tex who came in, who wasn't funny and now has some funny jokes every once in a while. Uh, like that's a level that's of that's a stretch, but that's like moving down that spectrum of creativity. So are you saying humor is creativity? I think so. Oh, stand-up comedy is definitely creative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Creativity, delivery. Um, so, what about like? Uh, so you know, let me let let's dive in. So, I think this is like you are like you are perfect right now. This oh, is thanks, exactly man. what I'm talking about. You're talking so, to me? No, I'm talking. I'm talking <laughs> all the way in the back. And so, but you're perfect. You're all perfect. Um, you know, maybe we have to work on the bench presses a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> Jokes, jokes. I know you're trying to be uh, relevant. You know. It was yeah, good. Well, I, I mean, it, like, uh, um, it's just it's you, a soft spot for John. Yeah. Actually, well, you know, I, little, <laughs> I, I try really to make true. jokes like easy, like the girls at text looks for. You know? God. <laughs> so, so here's here's when it comes to creativity. So you have this notion of creativity like this, and this is sort of our common like monomyth of creativity. You know, I like to think about the movie Amadeus and mm -hmm. Mozart is a great example. Like Mozart's the one that people always say, they're like, what about Mozart, Alan? Like that's always, that's always the thing people say. And if you watch the movie Amadeus, it literally starts with Mozart is three years old, blindfolded, playing the piano for the Pope. Like that's the opening scene in Amadeus. And then I saw that movie. Uh, you, you guys have never seen that movie. I mean, that's I like an eighties so. movie. So I'm surprised you're, I mean, how, how old are you? 11. You're 11. So okay. Well, that makes total sense. Then. 
But I mean, like that dude. I remember seeing that movie. I, I didn't see it in the theater. I think I remember seeing it on like TV, and I remember like the o- opening scene where he's playing with the blindfold in front and of like Salieri, yeah. his arch nemesis, who goes on to kill him in the movie. Spoiler: sure. He is kind of narrating and saying, um, you know, you know, Mozart composed his first concerto at four, opera at six, and he never had second uh, drafts. He would write first drafts that were perfect. It was like the voice of God. In this movie, won eight Academy Awards, sure. $220 million at the box office, um, $660 million inflation adjusted, which by the way, I was in Canada giving a talk and I was telling this story and I said something to the effect of, that's like a billion dollars Canadian and they got really upset. <laughs> and so anyway, You're like, it's like monopoly money in Canada. Right <laughs> But anyway, currency jokes. And anyway, so this movie has become this very sort of foundational element of the Mozart story. A lot of people have seen it. But like all of these aspects of the story are complete BS. So let's break it down. Mozart, well, he did not write any music at four. Here's what really happened. When he was three years old, he had what basically we would all call a helicopter dad who said, Mozart, I love you. But, which you should never say to a kid, conditional love, I love you, but you need to become a great musician. And little Mozart was like, whatever you say, dad, I just want your love. And he was like, great. And he hired for him the best music teachers in all of Europe. And he made this three-year-old kid practice three hours every single day, seven days a week. Mozart didn't write his first truly original piece of music, not at four, not at six. Um, When he was 17 is the first one. And there's two things. One, it's not very good. Two, this is after... 14 years of practicing three hours every single day under the conditional love of a helicopter dad with the best teachers in all of Europe, like you'd write a half-decent concerto too. And so what you often find with creativity is that so many people started young and we say, oh, wow, that person's this genius. They're brilliant. Well, no, by the time they're 20, they've been doing it for way longer than you have. Sure. And so the Mozart story is just like a really like it's a great example of how these stories get told and retold throughout history. Like this idea that he wouldn't do second drafts. This comes from a letter that was published in 1815 from Mozart, where he describes his composition process, except this letter was actually like hashtag fake news. It was forged <laughs> by the music magazine publisher because he wanted to sell more copies. And so like these notions we have of creativity, these big ideas, well, it's usually just an embellished sort of tall tale. And when you actually look at creativity in the sciences, what you find is that the scientists who study this stuff, there's consensus that natural born talent probably doesn't exist. It's at best overblown. And the way I sort of frame it to you guys is that like, I think we all agree that like if I started um, eating a lot of boneless, skinless chicken and going to the gym more, I would look more like you guys. But for some reason, when it comes to our brain, we're like, oh, well, our brain is fixed. Our brain is what it is. Well, uh, not to disagree with you, but uh, I hate chicken. (laughs) So that's the only thing I'm going to disagree with. And and, some strip steaks. And the only person who hates chicken more than me is this guy sitting right here with the uh, with the bro po. (laughs) Yeah. Chicken potato uh, for days. Is uh, I've always firm like believe that um, we mistake greatness for just opportunity. 
Um, I think that the three greatest factors for athletic and really just any type of achievement in life is genetics, geography, and opportunity. Um, you know, if you have a, you know, genetic aptitude for something like, um, you know, I'm six, six, so it was fairly, uh, you know, I had a good aptitude to be able to go play in the NFL, uh, you know, geography, you know, was I born in a place that was, uh, you know, like think about Mozart, right? His father, uh, wanted this for him and he had the opportunity and the means and the ability to find the best teacher to put him into it. So he gave him, you know, so he has the opportunity for it. So I think a lot of what we mistake in terms of genius, but I think in rare occasions you come across people that have no training or they have nothing that has ever spurred this stuff. And um, I've met a few people where it's like had, uh, you know, zero aptitude, no genetics, no geography, and then just something sparked where they created something. And I think that those are just the anomalies for this. So I want to dive into that a little bit. So I think sports is interesting because I think that's one of the areas where there's obvious structural things. Like, sure, there's short NBA players, but it's like helpful to be tall, sure. right? So I think sports has a structural element and a genetic element that a lot of creative fields don't. And I want to give you a couple examples. So our brains, they've done all these studies around our brain structure. And basically, we have this whole concept of neurogenesis, which is basically every day you generate thousands of new brain cells. And these new brain cells go to the parts of your brain that are most active, like almost they're repairing a muscle. And there's this study that was done in the 90s, which I think is really cool and a great example of this, where they took taxi cab drivers and they put them in an MRI machine. And what they found was that the longer someone had been a taxi cab driver, the larger the part of the hippocampus that's tied to visual, spatial, and navigational skills was. Being a taxi cab driver, you're constantly doing new routes, constantly trying to figure out you have a feedback mechanism in your passengers like this is not my house. That actually adapted their brain. They then compared this to bus drivers who drive the same route every day, and they found there was no change. And so our brain has this amazing ability to adapt to new skills. Now, so that's one. The second thing, which you said, I think is super interesting. You know, we have this idea of like, well, this person, you know, they just did it for the first time. And how did they do that? Like, it's magical. And what you find when you go back is that oftentimes in these scenarios, we're misattributing something. So let's say, for example, that I had a daughter and I loved uh, baseball. And when, starting when she was five, every, every Saturday, we'd go out to the back and we'd play baseball in the backyard. And she'd you know, run between the bases and all this stuff. And then when she's 11, her friends are all signing up for track practice. And she goes and signs up too, having never run track before. And she goes and she's like amazingly fast. And everyone's like, wow, natural born talent. But what you don't see is that actually there was this complementary, this adjacent skill, you know, running the backyard for six years, that she had this huge advantage over the other kids that compound. Sure. And so oftentimes I think the problem when we look at talent development is that it's really hard to go all the way back. It's really hard to know the whole story. There's very few examples of you know, fully recording someone's talent development from zero to one. In the book, I talk about one example we have that's pretty cool, which is this guy, Jonathan Hardesty. And at the age of 22, having never painted before, he decided to actually become a fine art painter because he liked the idea of working from home. This was his sort of logic. And he happened to be on this message board community, and he decided that he would post on the message board community one painting he did every single day. He did this for 13 years. 
And so we have this amazing record of how he evolved over time. And he talks about how he started taking very practical workshop lessons and how he engaged in something called deliberate practice, which is really mm-hmm. important to skill development. And from that, he actually now he teaches all these workshops. His art sells for five figures. He does all these big online trainings. And he literally started at zero. And so that's one of the problems when we talk about greatness and creativity and genius is it's so hard to go all the way back. Wow. And you provide some examples of Hardesty's work in the book, and it's pretty fascinating. That first, I guess, self-portrait that he drew and then a uh, picture. I don't know who she is, but it's a wonderful piece. Uh, let's, let's get into the creative curve. So this is a, a model you, you created and uh, kind of what's the purpose behind it and what can we learn from it? Yeah, so I, I actually, I can't claim credit for it. It's um, a scientific concept called the inverted U-shaped relationship between familiarity and preference, which would be a terrible title for a book. <laughs> so I rebranded it, you know, hashtag marketing. And basically, it's this pattern that you find when you want to understand what drives people to like certain things. So we think of um, human tastes and preference as this sort of magical thing. And we talk about tastemakers as having this special gift. But we actually know from science a ton about what drives human preference. And it's driven by these two seemingly contradictory urges. The first one we're all pretty comfortable with. And that's that we seek out things that are novel. As people, we want things that are new because they represent new sources of food, reward, pleasure. You can think about when you're a hunter-gatherer, you're always looking for that next meal. And so we have this, and I hate using this word because it's so cliche, but this hardwired notion that we need to find things that are novel. That's one. But the second urge we have that's also from evolutionary biology is that we also are fearful of the unfamiliar, we're fearful of things that we're not experienced with. We think they might harm us. If you saw a cave you've never slept in before and a cave you've slept in many times, you're not going to the cave you've never slept in before. That could kill you. And so what you find is that as people, we also seek out the familiar. It's why when you go home, even if on vacation, you stayed at a really nice hotel, there's still something kind of like comforting about being back there in that familiar place. And so these two urges seemingly make no sense. We seek out the novel for reward, but we also fear the unfamiliar and seek out the familiar for safety. Like, what? And so basically, it turns out that this contradiction is actually our brain's really elegant way to balance risk and reward. What our brain is looking for is ideas that are familiar enough to be safe, but novel enough to be interesting. And this is the real, when we talk about creative genius, that's actually what we're talking about. This ability to create ideas that are the right blend of familiar and novel. When you actually look at big creative successes over time, they're not radically new. The first Star Wars was a Western in space. Harry Potter is like the most basic orphan rising story, but there's wizards. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone, right? And you see this over and over again where the inventions that actually tend to do well are actually much more iterative right? Like the Segway did not work, right? It's like a mall cop toy, right? It was too new. It was weird. But now we're seeing these electric scooters everywhere. It's like, it's a format that people are more comfortable with. It's not that strange as a little bit of Uber, a little bit of the scooter you had as a kid mixed with an electric, like it kind of makes sense. So like being the first to the market is sometimes detrimental. 
Oh, 100%. One of the things that people get wrong when it comes to creativity is they forget that there's two elements of it. There is the technical skill, right, which is especially important in sports. And then there's the timing aspect. Is this the right idea at the right time? And in the book, I talk about this story. I talk about Campus Network, which is a social network that started a month before Facebook, also went viral at an Ivy League college, also tried to go national. And it failed. But what was interesting about it and why Facebook won is that Campus Network actually had more features. It had a news feed. It had an activity feed. All these things that Facebook would later become you know, a huge part of their revenue, a huge part of their usage. But at the time, back in 2004, 2005, people were like still freaked out about using their real name online. Like they weren't ready for all that stuff. Facebook, the early version of Facebook was like photo, message, poke. That was it. It was literally an online Facebook. But that was what people were ready for. And so, so often when it comes to creativity, we think it's all about technical skill. But like some of the most successful artists of our time, think about Andy Warhol, not that technically skilled, right? But he had a very good sense of timing. And as we can talk about later, a very good sense about how to distribute his ideas and gain recognition for them. Hmm. So I think it's time for the four laws. Um, Would you... (laughs) like to introduce the four laws and then I guess in in any order that uh, would help kind of explain sure. the story of why they're there. Sure. So why don't I'll give like, because um, it's, you know, half a book length explanation. So let me give you like a sort of overview and then we can dive in however you want. That'll work. So there's these four patterns I found with the creative achiever interviews I did that had 100% compliance. The first one is consumption. So often when we talk about creators, we talk about them in opposition to consumers, right? There's that sort of social media meme, like uh, 90% of people consume, 9% engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle. And like, not only is that stupid, but it's actually wrong. The best creators also go very, very deep in their consumption of their creative niche. And we talk more about why that is, but it has a lot to do with how your brain works and how the science behind aha moments work. The second law is that you know, we often talk about creativity as synonymous with new, as synonymous with innovation. But since creativity, in the sense that we want, which is actually creativity that's recognized by someone, also has to be familiar, imitation is actually a really important part of the creative process. And I don't mean plagiarism. What I mean is taking the structures of past successful work and remixing them, changing them, sort of making them a little bit different to make them new. You know, I hate uh, quoting Kanye West, like I really hate quoting Kanye West. But the other day, he tweeted out the great artist take an update, which is actually a remix of another quote by Steve Jobs. But anyway, <laughs> um, that is so, so, so true. When you look at the creators that we all aspire to, they're actually not as original as you think. And imitations are a really big part of that. The third law is creative communities. So we think of these creative geniuses as like, you know, the magazine cover the, you know, whoever the author's name is in big, bold letters on the book. But the reality is, is that every creative process, because figuring out something that people are going to like is a social, a social thing, you have to have other people involved. And so I talk about in the book, the different types of people that you want to have in your creative community. And then the fourth and final one is data-driven iterations. You know, there's this idea that these creatives are like, 
going to like the writing cabin and they're locking the door and they only leave once they write the end, period. But that is complete, complete BS. The reality is that the best creative achievers, since they realize that their job is to create for an audience and they're comfortable with that, they try and get feedback early and often in their process and they have a highly iterative process. It's usually the creative aspirers who are the ones who talk about being, you know, creating for yourself and all this stuff. Well, you're saying that because it's not actually working, right? Creative achievers know that the point of creativity is to create some resonance, right? That reaction is such a huge part of the creative process. So where do you want to start? (laughs) Let's, Let's start with consumption. Uh, what I really enjoyed was the 20% principle. And this honestly remind me a lot about sport in that we spent maybe 20% of our time in the game film room, right? Where we're not actively on the field or practicing, but we are learning so much. Um, so I guess kind of explain the 20% principle to our audience. First of all, I love that metaphor. That's really cool. Um, I hadn't thought of that before, but Basically, one of the things that you find when you look at these creative achievers is that they go very, very deep in their consumption in their niche. And it's not all about them doing. It's not all about sort of practicing, but it's also about seeing what else is out there. Can, can you give us like a practical, uh, like, you'd like, what do you mean deep in their consumption? So I interviewed Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, and he told me about how a foundational experience for him was at 18, he got a job at a video store. Um, and he decided that during the day when it was quiet, he would watch every single movie in the store. And to this day, he watches hours and hours of um, entertainment every single day. J.K. Rowling famously had these parents who would fight, so she'd close her door and put her head in a book and just read and read and read. In college, she had all these library finds because she had so many books that actually like all the novelists I interviewed told me some version of that story. Like it got to a point I was like, I get it. Like you read a lot. Um, <laughs> but it's not that – there's this sort of notion that they're like renaissance people. Right? They learn – you know, a little about a lot, but that's not actually true. Creative sure. achievers go very, very, very deep. And so, you're, so you're talking about basically mastery of their, you know, like whatever they're given is, they've sunk themselves deep into the mastery of it. And how yeah. others are doing it. And yeah, yeah well, they the just variance. know, they just know everything about it. Mm-hmm. And this serves a couple roles. One is that since familiarity is also part of creativity, well, you got to know what's already out there if you want to create that familiarity and if you want to know how novel or not novel something is, so where it falls in that creative curve. And the second thing that's actually really interesting is that so much of the creative process is about getting the right idea at the right time and doing that. And unless you're going to go and have a million experiences, well, consumption can actually give you a lot of the mental models and representations you need to make these sort of decisions. And so – the other thing I thought was interesting was that, you know, there's a lot of these stories around these creators who would like, you know, when they were kids or teenagers, they had this big ingestion. But what I talk about in the book is this idea of the 20% principle, which is that ongoing, they actually keep consuming and they spend like a crazy amount of time consuming. It was about three to four hours a day was the common number, about 20% of your waking hours. They spend consuming their creative products and their creative niche. Like that's mind boggling. And I think there's this idea of like the creator who like grinds it out, but these really successful creatives, it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter and hard. Or just not really having anything to distract them from their, like their creative niche. So it's not as if, uh, you know, if you're that writer, you're in it all of a sudden, you know, this is what I do. I read. It's not like, oh, and uh, I'm trying to run a marathon. 
Yeah. And I found, you know, for me, it was interesting just inherently, you know, I was experiencing writing, by the way, writing a book about creativity is like super meta and writing a book about creating hits is even like more meta and high pressure. Um, so if the book fails, like, well, um, maybe you weren't creative enough. (laughs) There you go. Um, and so basically what I thought was interesting was as I was going about, um, you're writing the book, I started reading like thousands of pages of peer-reviewed research on creativity across all the different social sciences. And when I would go on a run and when I would have my sort of moments of inspiration, so to speak, like that's what I would have moments of inspiration about. I didn't have those before, right? Like, you know, there's this famous story of Paul McCartney waking up with the melody that went on to become yesterday. And people are like, where did it come from? And it's like, first of all, the melody he dreamed up is literally the baseline from Georgia on my mind, which was like a song by one of his favorite artists. And he spent his entire childhood listening to music. He had musical parents. He literally played in a cover band guys. Like he was ingesting all this stuff. So when he synthesized and come up with things, that's what's in his brain. That's what's percolating. And so, you know, what goes in is what goes out. Right. And so that's such a huge part of creativity that I think we often overlook. The, uh, the, the Mozart piece reminded me of Tiger Woods. You know, I remember uh, like Tiger Woods and his dad, like took him to the golf course and what they did. And that was like their way to connect. And like Tiger Woods, dad giving him the opportunity to go play. And now the next thing you know, he's his phenom. But if you go back and you look at how it was structured. And it reminds oh, me of yeah. the, the SNL skit of Tiger Woods and his dad with uh, fucking <laughs> Tracy like, Morgan, Tracy Morgan and fucking um, uh, who's he? Tim Meadows. Tim Meadows. Yeah. He's like. Yeah, my dad glued that golf club to my hand, and I tried to swing it out of my hand. I hated that golf club. Like, <laughs> I remember when Tiger grabbed that golf club, swung it to and fro all the live long day. He loved that golf club. Juxtaposed. But so let me ask you this. On this 20% principle, is this something that these creative geniuses or creative talents, I should say, are aware of? That they're spending? Sometimes. Yeah, So okay. sometimes. I found one of the things that was interesting is that I'd say about it was half and half for these things that mm-hmm. half of the people had sort of intuited it, but it wasn't conscious. Mm-hmm. Like they were just, oh, I like reading. I read a lot. And the yeah. other half were like, like I interviewed this one guy who like sat me down and this was towards the end of my interviews. And he's like, Alan, here's what you need to know. One of the most important things is to consume. And I was like, I already wrote that chapter. I got yeah. it. <laughs> and so like, so you found that there was a, some people and it also depends on how they learned it. So some people learned very specifically from um, teachers in person. Some people learned sort of a little bit more indirectly. And so how they went about learning and who they learned from and that person's style pretty heavily impacted their own. One thing I thought was really interesting is there's this um, book that you guys would all really like called Developing Talent in Young People, which they looked at everything from like um, Nobel Prize winning scientists to top athletes to top musicians. And they found 120 of these people. And they tried to trace back as much as possible their childhoods. And one of the things they found, of the 120, of the 120 people, 120 of them had a world-class teacher. And that goes mm-hmm. to the point you were saying about geography and opportunity. It's like, it's not shocking that a lot of the world's like best musicians these days come from like upper middle-class households who could afford great music lessons, right? Mm-hmm. This is like not obviously some weird DNA fluke. This is like, no, no, you actually have to have access to opportunity. And this is why you actually see that creative fields are traditionally some of the least diverse. We think of creative fields as like super progressive, but actually if you go to Hollywood, it's like, it's like all white dudes, right? Because there's this whole social dynamic to creativity that can make it very insular and make it very recurring. Then how do you explain like a Jimi Hendrix, for example? So 
So there's always exceptions. Yeah. But so yeah, the like the outliers. Still, when you look at like venture capital, for example, it's 88% male. It's 92% white. And it's usually some so what? like uh, some family money too. When you look at that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and so you see that you know create, creative fields are actually oftentimes there's more structural barriers to entry than a lot of other fields that might be you know, more quote unquote meritocratic. So like, you know, these days, for example, like banking jobs are more meritocratic than getting a job in Hollywood where it's like, who's your dad? Who do you yeah. know? Can you afford to work in the mailroom, which is literally the starter job at a talent agency? Like a lot of like poor kids can't do that. So you see these like the same like rich connected families sort of like control these creative fields over and over and over again. That's starting to change obviously, but that is a dynamic in creativity. So Alan, I mean, you know, I'm, parallel a lot of John's thoughts when when you tell people this stuff and why is it their natural reaction to throw these exceptions out you know what I mean yeah yeah. well I think that this idea that creativity is this sort of divinely inspired thing I think it for different people has different roles in how they view the world and some of this you might not like but that's okay that's what we're here for for. yeah no tear the band-aid off man for some people it's inspiring for some people it's motivating um you know there's something out there that I can do for other people. It's discouraging. I think for a lot of people though, it's actually this sort of dangerous excuse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, when we talk about finding our passion, it's code word for finding something that's easy in the beginning. And I have to tell you, there's nothing other than video games. That's truly easy in the beginning. You might've been so young. You might've been pressured by a parent or an older sibling, right. To get over the hump. And then all of a sudden you discover your passion when you become good at it. And this is why you see so many people start talent young is that because like they start taking violin lessons when they were five. And so, but the reality is, and you see this, I think pretty well with sports, you think about, you've seen like, you know, transformations of people on Instagram, for example, and you see that people can go from really sort of like nowhere to really significant places, but it's hard. No one just goes to the gym and all of a sudden a week later has you know, gigantic muscles. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's this notion that there's something out there for me which will be easy. And that gives us off the hook when uh, it comes to doing the hard work. So it basically becomes a scapegoat when you see these people that are That's like naturally gifted. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, I, um, I remember uh, always hearing the story about uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, wasn't um, accepted here in the United States. So they sent him over to the UK to play and he ended up becoming friends with Eric Clapton. And I guess the first time he goes on stage, Eric Clapton walks off. And he's like, wow. I can't be on stage with this guy. He's, he, you didn't tell me he was this good. He's, and Eric Clapton like threw this complete like emotional fit because Jimmy <laughs> Hendrix just basically played him off the stage and uh, had no formal talent and was just like this, you know, virtuoso of, uh, of it. And I just always remember that, you know, because Eric Clapton's an incredible musician and to have Jimi Hendrix, you know, go out there and yeah, just, upstage you know, him. yeah, upstage him. <laughs> so I, I always think about that, like, be careful what you wish for. Somebody asks you to do a, a you know, hey, hey, can my buddy come and play on stage with you? And the next thing the dude smokes it. So, um, but uh, it's interesting, like I, uh, a little history, uh, you know, for us, but like for me, um, I played in the NFL for 10 years before I did this. And uh, I was one of those people who was not good at this job early on and it took a ton of work, but yet I played with guys that literally, unless a, a car struck them on their way to the tryout, we're still gonna play in the NFL and just had mm. so much God-given talent that um, they just weren't going to fuck it up. Uh, and, so, and they actually tried numerous times to fuck it up. They still <laughs> figured out ways to not do it. So I think in sports, there is this structural physical element that yeah, sure. is, like, is unique to sports. But the one thing I would say is that like, you, you listen to like, 
the Kobe Bryant's of the world or LeBron James of the world, those guys fucking practice. Oh, yeah. Like those guys are like very diligent. Like you see Kobe talking about his like diet and how, or Tom Brady, like how yeah. sophisticated they are. Like, yeah, there are guys who are just big. But when you look at the people that were like, damn, like they're very, very, very serious about this. I don't think yeah, that's yeah, a like LeBron doesn't fuck around. I well, mean, everything and, and Kobe Bryant. But I mean, dude, we always talk about um, remember when we saw the thing with Pete Rose and yeah. he was uh, with Big Herd and uh, who else? It was uh, a rod. A rod. So uh, Pete Rose was on this uh, like kind of like behind the scenes baseball thing. And he was talking baseball with uh, Frank Thomas and uh, a rod. And all of a sudden, uh, Pete Rose went into this like whole different thing where he was talking about how to do this and this and these two other hall of famers and you know pete rose should be in the hall of fame regardless what you think about it uh all of a sudden like took this step back like they were like children and became uh you know i mean what would you say like uh passengers on this deal they, and they, they forgot they were on television and we're just in a learning moment with with a great yeah with one of the best ever and you realized how a different level of this individual in which he played and dude, it would st- it's still one of my favorite things in sports and to see. One of my favorite interviews, Alan, I'll shoot it your way, but it's Ray Allen, one of LeBron's former teammates. And somebody, the interviewer said, you know, your, your natural talent shooter three points. And he stopped him and he said, this is not a natural talent by admitting natural talent. Then I sacrifice all the hours that I invested in, in mastering my skill. Mm-hmm. So we stopped him. Yeah, right there. But isn't that a talent in creativity? The ability to focus to on and that's, something? That's where I was going to First jump of all, into. fuck that. I hate that the internet has turned into this fucking, you know, grind and bullshit. And like, you know, somehow I'm like, dude, it's, uh, it's called living a life and fucking working for uh, something to be successful. It's not the grind. It's just what you fucking do. Well, it's immersion and consumption, right? And I was, guess I was going to ask, you know, and maybe it's not the right question. Maybe I'll frame it wrong. But when does this concept of creativity, and maybe I'm biased as well, thinking in the scope of like um, maybe more technical side of things, right, versus uh, artistic. But when, where does creativity stop and where do you just, where do you have the bandwidth to replicate a complex set of instructions over and over again more efficiently, right? So, so one of the things that's this really... Well, you've, you've, I'm sure you guys have all heard it, but there's this notion of the 10,000 hours rule sure, comes sure. from Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, you're all like, yes. Yes. And um, this has become a really big part of how we talk about skill development. And the, the whole idea for any listeners who haven't heard of it, which is probably very few, is that with 10,000 hours of practice, you become world class at anything. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. Oh, my God, it's so wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, in the way that it's wrong, it actually causes some harm. So this is based on research by a guy named Kay Anders Erickson, who's a really yeah. um, well-cited professor. You guys might have had him on the show before. I talked to him. No, but we've book. read all of, her, all of his stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so 10,000 hours rule is based on his research. But the 10,000 hours rule, one, um, the first way it's wrong is that 10,000 hours was the average across skills. So like becoming world-class at the piano these days takes about 25,000 hours. Becoming world-class at digit memorization, which there's now tournaments for, takes about 400 hours. But the other thing that's even more wrong is that the whole paper, all of Erickson's work, as you guys know, is about deliberate practice, not practice, which is like wholly different. And so there's these sort of dangerous notions that have gone out because practice is about making something rote. It's about making it subconscious. Deliberate practice is about breaking the skill down to something so small that you can keep it conscious, keep it aware, and actually get better at it. And so 
Um, I, Erickson gave me this quote that I put in the book, which is that, quote, Gladwell misread our paper, period, unquote. And I think, you know, some of the times, you know, to your point, sometimes we develop these sort of like internet maxims or mantras that spread really wide that I think are just sort of our modern way of how you sort of see this like creativity monomyth that's developed. I think this is just sort of the next iteration of that. Mm-hmm. We like these reductionist views of these things. Well, it makes it digestible. And it makes it feel attainable to people. I mean, you know, all of a sudden you sit up and you're like, hey, I, uh, you know, I have the 60 person company and it's built on creativity. And somebody's like, well, I'm creative. How come I don't have a 60 person company dealing with creativity? And like, and well, if, if all I need is 10,000 hours, what if I start today? And I think the thing is that it also gets this distinction wrong of like, it's not about working um, harder. It's about working smart and harder, right? And those, those are different. To your point, it's not just about hashtag the grind, right? Mm-hmm. It's about you have to think of your whatever you're trying to develop as a craft, right? Something that you're trying to get better at. You need other people to help you. You need to track your, like there's all sorts of stuff. And just saying, oh, I just need to like show up at the gym or I need to show up at my writing studio and just grind it out, I think is very dangerous. Yeah, I think if you're you're operating on the same capacity you were an, a year ago, maybe that's not the right time block, but the objective is <laughs> to increase bandwidth, but maximize throughput, right? And that's bandwidth. regardless of the, what you're putting yourself into, and so. I think that can be accomplished with your third law, the creative communities. So you mentioned in the book four different types, and Luke for sure is a conflicting collaborator. <laughs> wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. <laughs> uh, so what are, what are the four types and kind of quick examples for each? You guys are so funny. Um, so basically what you find, you, know, you have this notion of the creative genius as the solo operator, but they actually have a lot of people around them. So in the book, I describe these four. The one that I think is pretty interesting, um, you know, especially you see this obviously in teams, is that of the conflicting collaborator. So a lot of aspiring creatives have internalized these notions of creative genius as, I need to be good at everything. The reality is these great creatives, they're actually very self-aware of what their weaknesses are, and they use other people to fill in those weaknesses. They know I'm not good at X, so I need to find someone to do that. I talk in the book about Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo has been on this tear, and they're like in their early 30s. And one of them is like this big idea, like super hyper guy. And the other one is this like very introverted. Like when I was interviewing him, I had to be like, Justin, how about you? And he's a very introverted, very systems thinker. And like together, it's magical. Apart, ugh. And so they could have each been discouraged about this. Like, I don't have the discipline to be a songwriter or I don't have the big ideas. But instead, what they do is they find people to work with that patch that up. So that's the first one. The second one is that of a master teacher, which we talked a little bit about before. But you really need a world-class teacher who's going to give you that feedback as part of your deliberate practice because feedback is an important part of deliberate practice. The third one... um, and the one that I think is like really just like is a thing that I think you need to really wrap your head around is the idea of a prominent promoter. So, so often when we talk about mentors, we talk about their role in teaching us. But the other way mentors are important is that they lend us their credibility. They promote us. They lend us their reputation. There's this crazy study that was done that compared um, Nobel Prize winning scientists to other scientists of similar pedigrees, similar ages, who did not go on to win the Nobel Prize. They said, well, what, what happened? What happened differently? And what they found was, okay, in their 20s, 
that Nobel Prize winning scientists publish about twice the amount of papers. And you might go, well, duh, like, of course they did. That's why they were successful. They're harder working, they're smarter, whatever. That is not at all what it was. What it was that these scientists worked for senior researchers in the labs that were willing to share credit on the papers. They were willing to put their names on the papers. So by the time they were in their 30s, they had more citations, they had more papers, they were easier to get tenure, and this compounding advantage goes over time. You see this idea of the prominent promoter in any creative field. Um, in tech, you see the board of directors, board of advisors. In music, you see the idea of opening acts, right? Um, like they literally, someone becomes famous, they have an opening act, that person becomes famous, they get their own opening acts, this sort of evolution that you see. Books, you have blurbs on the back of the book, right? So that's really important. And the fourth and final one is what I call a modern muse, which is that these creators find people around them who have really good creative energy. And they tend not to, their friend group isn't like who they went to college with. It's people who either motivate them through friendly competition or motivate them through emotional support to help them get through these ups and downs. And also just to give them that little push because creativity is hard. And I, I want to save the law of imitation for last. Well, I mean, then, uh, but this is the, the structure and how you've laid this all out, Alan, is like strikingly similar to the athletic development model that we mm -hmm. use, right? In terms of like the role of a coach in that or coaches that would fulfill these these communities, right? For for someone who's looking to display their whatever they can do physically in a creative and effortless way, right? And it's it just it's funny how this whole thing parallels so so closely. And it's athleticism is one of those things that and like being faster. It, it, people think that you either are or you aren't. You're born that way, right? And quite often we have to go in and kick in the door and battle with people and be like, no, here's what it takes. Like it, it, oh, all totally, these yeah. little bits that you're talking about on this creative development side and sure there's structural components to it. Like hundred well, percent acknowledge, but it's, it goes back to this observation I made uh, years ago where it was, um, uh, I sat next to a, a guy who was a, a scout for the St. Louis Rams and he made, he asked a point, he said, do you think that, you or somebody else could fool us into thinking that you were a great athlete and you were incredibly athletic. And I said, 100%, I could fool you into this any day. And he, they, they had drafted a kid real high up, like top three or four or five pick. And he, they thought he was an incredible athlete, could do all these things. And they got him out there and in the NFL, they said uh, he couldn't play dead. He couldn't do the job. And the guy was like, we wasted a huge draft pick. This guy fooled us. Do you think that he fooled us into thinking he was something that he wasn't? I said, 100%. And he asked me how, and I told him that there's a set of skills that I can do, and if I can do them well, regardless of whether or not they're organic or they're you know just God-given or whatever, that I can become a master of, of the, the movement patterns for the skills at which you're testing him. And if I understand those skills and I'm able to put the pieces together, like if I can teach you a song and I can just basically teach you the chords, and then all you have to do is just basically practice those chords at such a point that like this is the only riff I can play. <laughs> like that's what football, especially offensive line, what I did can can do. And then you guys not, uh, you know, never hearing it, never seeing this, all of a sudden show them up, put them through these drills and be like, oh, this guy's an incredible athlete. We should draft him here. And then when you put him into a situation where now he's playing against guys who are really good athletes that can do a whole bunch of things, the guy gets exposed within seconds. So I was like, the problem is, is that you guys don't know how to test or how to search for athleticism. So your model is broken and how you're traditionally doing it is broken. And uh, you fucking wasted millions of dollars on it.
And so uh, <laughs> that that piece really came back, and I thought to myself, you know what? Let's define fitness. I mean, uh, not fitness, but let's define athleticism, and let's break athleticism down into these components, teach the components, and then let people put it back together, and then we can basically improve athleticism to the point where now you become a good athlete. And as I, I believe, athleticism is taught. Now the limitations and where you start on this deal right. is based off of genetics, geography, and opportunity. Like for example, if you've never done something. Uh, like, you know, and like you said, like, let's say your dad was a baseball player and from the time you were a little kid, you saw him swing the ball, swing the bat, you go out and play T-ball and you have a natural kind of aptitude for it. Wow, this kid's a natural hitter. And all of a sudden, oh, your dad played, you must be good. Now all of a sudden the C or the, uh, uh, the power of suggestion where now the kid's like, well, I should be good at this. My dad played at it. I've seen him do it. And now instantly he feels kind of empowered to be better, which I think the power of suggestion and telling people that they can do things, especially at a young age is so, uh, important and being like, you're so good at this. You should do this more. And kids, oh, 100%. I love this now. <laughs> Oh, this is why I think this is why I think the stats are crazy about kids losing their sort of creative spark. Because I think what it is is parents say stupid stuff like, "Oh, like Johnny, I know you like the guitar, but like musicians don't make a lot of money." Yeah. And that is like, hey, it's teaching your kids all sorts of weird values. It's all about money. Yep. Um, that you know, creativity doesn't pay. Which, by the way, in the age of AI and automation, creativity is the most future-proof skill. Yeah. So like well, getting no, your kid dude. to become a professional and become an accountant or whatever, like that's all being automated. I'm sorry, mom and dad. Hmm. And so I think we really do a disservice to kids right now in our culture. And like the whole like way in which we teach kids in schools is all basically about getting a white collar professional job. Well, almost always in a high skill, repeatable function. Well, the uh, the way our, our structure, I believe, was built for schooling is uh, based off of the, you know, uh, industrial revolution, build factory workers. Can you 100%. show up? Can I teach you these basic skills? And then can you t- prove to me that you've learned the basic skills so I can plug you in like a widget into like the assembly line? And what we don't teach is we don't teach the kids to be creative and how to problem solve and how to work together and work in groups to figure out like, hey, here's a problem. Let's put you guys together. How are you guys going to figure structure? How are you going to figure this out? And and then let's hear your creativity on how we're going to solve these problems. And we don't do that. 100%. And uh, that's 100%. why I'm thinking like uh, the way that we're teaching our kids. And I had a guy hit me on Twitter who was arguing with me on this point. So if you're listening to this, this is for you. Uh, <laughs> that what we have to do is we have to go back and look at a way to kind of figure out like, okay, hey, if that's the industrial revolution and now we're in this technology creativity revolution, how is it that we have to drive school to meet the new demands or we're going to get left behind? So that's my preaching. I think kids just need to get more riffraff, right? Talking my way out of bullshit is, I think, what, bro. <laughs> you know, like, get caught by a parent, pulled over by a cop on a moped, you know, things like that. You got to talk your way out of these situations. You no, learn. I agree, actually. I think, I think letting kids be kids is actually a really important part of development. I had <clears throat> my experience growing up was I had heavily divorced parents. They were divorced when I was, like, one. Oh. And only child. They both worked a ton. My mom went back to school at one point. So I spent a lot of time by myself. And I look back and people are like, wow, you're really self-reliant. And I'm like, yeah, that was totally a social, like, you, you grew up in Jersey, where in Jersey, uh, central New Jersey, which apparently doesn't exist, but it exists. (laughs) Well, it's not that big a state. What? Like Trenton? Uh, well, the other side of central. So Monmouth County. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's a little hump. Yeah. No, I I used to live in South Jersey. I lived in uh, Morristown. Oh, cool. But that was like, that was for me, this experience of like having all this like time by myself as like an 11 year old, like did drive me to learn and adapt different skills. And, you know, I didn't really have parents who were around saying, don't do that, don't do this. And that was definitely on one level sort of sad, but it also provided a lot of benefits. And so 
I think that is just really important with kids is like they really, really listen and model your behavior and what you value. And those little things you say are going to impact little Johnny for the rest of his life. Sure. Speaking of impacting kids, let's get into the law of imitation. Uh, you introduced four story arcs, and I found the, this com- extremely fascinating. And well, you would because you're a hack. No, because imitate. it's amazing interesting. So these four story arcs, I'd love uh, for you to introduce them. And then we have, I guess I just want to save one minute to see, get your opinion on John and I's movie battle that's been ongoing for over a year. <laughs> so what are the four story arcs? And then I'll introduce the question. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that these great creatives, they imitate, right? As we talked about before, because that's part of how they learn what are these familiar structures with which they can add their own novel twist for. Writers, I think, are an awesome example of this. Kurt Vonnegut at one point tried to get a master's thesis in anthropology, which, by the way, he ended up uh, quitting because he said, quote, I didn't realize how stupid primitive people were. And he, for his thesis, what he did is he went out and read all these great novels and he mapped out the emotional arc of the stories. And he found there's these four recurring story arcs that appeared over and over again. And for example, he talks about man in a hole, which isn't about a man falling in a hole. It's a story of something starts off positive, something bad happens. The whole rest of the book is getting out of that hole. This is curious. So this is, well, I was going to ask, uh, does this have anything to do with Welcome to the Monkey House? You said he wanted to be an anthropologist? I, I, uh, maybe. Who knows? Uh, I mean, that's what I always know Kurt Vonnegut as, Welcome to the Monkey House. Well, it was really cool, actually. So his estate gave me the permission to reprint the images in the book. So the images that are in there are actually um, basically redrawings of the one he actually drew. And what was cool about this is this was like a foundational experience for him as a writer. It was literally like, well, what's the formula? What's the structure? And so, so many times we see this with these really great creatives, but yet when we're like these aspiring creatives, we're like, I have to be wildly original. And it's like, no one actually wants that. Like, please just follow, like, the same basic story arcs we've been doing for thousands of years that we know work. But, like, add your own characters and taste and genre and texture. And, like, that's what's really cool. So we got Man in the Hole. Uh, Oh, okay. Boy Meets Girl. Man in the Hole, which is basically that. We have... Oh, uh, the Buddy Cop movie. However, movie is a Buddy Cop. Or, like, there's, like, the Buddy... Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have a Cinderella story, which is starts bad, gets better, gets terrible again, then becomes infinitely happy. Um, you get boy meets girl, which is there's someone starts, he meets the girl, he's super happy, he loses her, then he gets her back. And then there's the funniest one, which is a Kafka story, which is basically it starts terrible, he turns into a cockroach, it's all horrible. And that is not a good commercially viable book. And what's crazy is these scientists much later went back uh, this was, I think, like five years ago, and they had saw this lecture that Kurt Monica gave on this topic because there's this viral video about it, and they decided, why don't we actually run Project Gutenberg, which is this free online library, through NLP processing, natural language processing, and see if this is true. And they found – they actually found six, but four of them were the, the ones that Kurt Vonnegut found. They found these six recurring story arcs. And so, like, this stuff is like – it's math. It's not, you know, it's not hocus pocus. Fascinating. I, I loved it. And now, so the question, I know, movies, 1994 is the greatest movie year no, of all time. it's or 1985. 1985. 
Well, just just Nine. to give you a hit, eighty five, Back to the Future, Rocky Five, Goonies, Weird Science, Breakfast Club, Rainbow. Rambo. Uh, what else? We got Cocoon. We got Pale Rider, Mad Max, Fletch, we, we know Commando. Okay, what about eighty uh, four? What was uh, this, this ninety four? We got Forrest Gump, like us. Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, The Lion King, Shawshank, True Lies, Dumb and Dumber, Speed, The Mask. And it, oh, the list goes on. Guys, St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire. It's just, hard. It's a hard. 85. It's I mean, hard, dude, it's got. Okay, just swings. listen. Just listen. St. Elmo's Fire. It's got a list. Barry Gordy's <laughs> The Last Dragon. Uh, I mean, dude, uh, The Sure Thing. This is clear. Ace Ventura. This is clear. 85. Uh-huh. Uh, Ace you got Ventura. A, you got a Jim Carrey bias. D2. I'm calling it. <laughs> Mighty Ducks. <laughs> Mighty dude. Ducks, too. Emilio. <sighs> 85. They're both texts. There's no way. They're both great. Just the fact that. Breakfast Club came out in 85. Just that movie alone. <laughs> Airheads. The Lone Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> There's only Dude, one. And, and then uh, I, I also have a pretty confirmed deal. One of my buddies at Berkeley uh, did his, uh, his thesis. So he smoked a lot of pot, though, uh, that he <laughs> believed that people that were not funny, that there was a, uh, um, if you watch Fletch enough, like, and I, I forgot what his like threshold was, but there was a certain amount of, fl- of watching Fletch that you could basically develop a sense of humor by watching Chevy Chase in the whole movie of Fletch. And that through watching Fletch, you too could have a sense of humor for unfunny people. And that was his thesis. And you know what? Frankly, I think he was, I think he was dead on to something. Sounds like the law of immersion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, The law of immersion. 10,000 hours. Like, Hey, how, how, how long does it take to be funny? I don't know. How many times did you watch Fletch? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to go watch Fletch now. Yeah. 85. Alan, I know we're tight on time, man. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for jumping on. Yeah, this is so fun, guys. Tell people about the book. Where can they find more? Where can so, they find I more? I hope one day that we are uh, successful enough that can, we can actually work together and, and have you help us in some way. I'm yeah, like, I would love to. So it's The Creative Curve, thecreativecurve.com, uh, anywhere books are sold. And if you check out the book website, you can see a very silly book trailer that is a cameo from my adorable four-year-old corgi so check it out boom cool. all, right. all right power athlete nation that is it that is another week another podcast another book there you go all right thanks guys thanks for listening alan take care buddy thank Travel you safe. best of luck and we'll be in touch bye guys bye, bye. bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Remember to look for Alan's book, The Creative Curve, anywhere books are sold. Visit trackmaven.com to learn more about Alan's work in improving return on investment for businesses large and small. I mentioned last week that at the conclusion of each episode, I would be providing a lesser-known reason for attending the Power Athlete Symposium in Texas on December 7th, 8th, and 9th. This week, I present reason number 308, seeing John in real life. No, not because of his impressive athletic career or creation of CrossFit football, power athlete, blah, 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 blah. Nobody cares about that. But just seeing his size in person, you'll no longer have to stare at a picture of him searching for objects near him, around him, just to familiarize yourself with some sort of idea of scale. And the real shocker is that in real life, he is incredibly petite. But don't take my word for it. Go to powerathlete.com backslash symposium to get your tickets. And go ahead, bring that dollar bill for scale. Until next time, bye!